0: Uh, Have you ever met one of the people that has uh, two passports, you know, um, people who uh, have dual citizenship? You ever met people like that? I have a German friend. He was in the U.S. attending Dallas Seminary when his wife gave birth to their first son, Pascal. Uh, Now, by U.S. law, that boy has all the rights of becoming a U.S. citizen because he was born on American soil. Pascal returned home with his parents after they finished seminary. He spent most of his growing up years in Germany, but he never renounced his U.S. citizenship options. In fact, he selected dual citizenship, a situation where Pascal is is simultaneously a U.S. citizen and a German national. I remember when Pascal turned 18 and he made it official, he was going to accept dual citizenship. We were all somewhat envious. I mean, can you imagine all the blessings and pride of being a complete American, and at the same time, an accepted member of the country with the second-best chocolate in the world, the best bread, the best soccer, and the best beer? The only seeming dark clouds on Pascal's sunny horizon were the payments. You see, Germany requires of its young citizens two years of military service, at least they did at that time. And the U.S. has that horrible income tax on every citizen, even dual citizens living abroad. Now, at 18, Pascal thought he could work it out where he could avoid the worst of each payment. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. As you can guess, he paid U.S. taxes and he was subject to German military service. In fact, he paid United States income tax on the money he made serving in the German military. It was a bit tough on Pascal, but I was proud of him. He did his duty by each country. Now, don't get me wrong. He was still very, very proud to be a dual citizen, but he learned that having two passports means you must pay, twice, and that is the truth for all people with two passports, including you. Yes, you, if you're a Christian. You see, Christians also have two passports. We have one for heaven, and we have one for earth. The big question in this life is, am I paying what I owe to each government? That's the question in Romans 13. Uh, open your Bible, if you would, to Romans 13. In this passage, Paul opens our eyes to our, our two passports and the responsibilities of each. Uh, Romans is right after Acts in your New Testament. Go to Romans chapter 13, and let's read, uh, let's read the whole passage uh, verses 1 through 10. Let everyone submit to the governing authorities. This is talking about human, earthly authorities. "...since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason." For it is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore, you must submit, not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason, you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's servants continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those you owe taxes, Uh, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. Do not owe anyone, anything, except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, those are all from Exodus chapter 20, by the way. Uh, And any other commandment are summed up by this commandment from Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Now, I know what you're thinking. In your, uh, in your German military imitation, you're saying right now, that is out of order? Soldier, last time we studied the first part of chapter 12, or now you skip to Dresden, right to 13, explain yourself. Um, officer, I know, I know, I know it's out of order, but we're going to tie the whole together. L- listen, to... To fit these present circumstances, it seems really wise to study this part of chapter 13 this week. You see, look here, Romans 12 through 13 is built, it's a stair step of a number of imperative commands. Those are those are things you're told to do, you must do. Um, our slight rearrangement, we just rearranged these two sections, it, it shouldn't diminish the commands at all, and by rearranging them... We let Scripture speak in a very timely manner to our particular cultural moment. We're going to go back. We're going to finish chapter 12 next time. I cannot imagine the apostle minding, so just relax, and and you'll see how it works out. Now, before we engage deeply in this text, let's make certain we understand the very important backdrop to this passage. Oh, by the way, that's the headline you'll find in your notes, the very important backdrop. Hopefully, you've downloaded the notes from FriscoBible.com. Um, the uh, first big headline you see there is the very important backdrop. Let's start with the idea of earthly citizenship. This is critical to our Bible study in Romans. Since we are learning from God's word delivered through the apostle Paul, let's examine his own use of the idea of citizenship. Look up here, Acts chapter 21. Paul is standing before a human court, a Roman court, and he reminds them that he is a proud Roman citizen. He said, I am a Jewish man from Tarsus of Kilikia, a citizen of an important city. Now, I ask you, let me speak to the people. The term he uses here is polites. Polit, that's your fancy word for today, uh, kids. On the count of three, you get to say polites, okay? Polit, three. I haven't said one yet. Okay, you ready? Count of three. One, two, three. Polites. Very good. Polites um, is really significant. It means citizen. It's to be a member of the polis, which is the, the, uh, the city. Uh, it's, it's the term from which we get politics, right? To be a citizen means that you are an official member of the state. And, and this, this is very important. Member of the state or not, free or slave, Greek thought demanded this. Every soul in the polis is subject to the political authority the police authority. Paul employs this word on purpose, on purpose because God establishes human authority. Kids, let me ask you this. During the past few weeks, have you had a parent tell you any of these phrases? Listen to these phrases. Be polite. Stop acting like a barbarian. Have you heard that one? Well, that's not how we do it in our house. Because I said so. Sometimes you are so uncivilized that I think you were actually raised by wolves, and the wolves stuck into our house, and they switched my wonderful child with you, some wild thing raised by wolves. Uh, by the way, that 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 last one's hypothetical. I probably never said that to any of, or all of my children. Okay, uh, raise your hand, kids. If you had, it doesn't. I, raise your hand if you had any parent, any authority tell you anything like that. Okay, all those statements, every one of those statements, is directly tied to the idea of polites. The authorities in our lives have the right and the responsibility to command citizens to obey the rule of law. This polites idea, this is the the canvas upon which Romans 13 is painted. And the Roman audience understood it really well. Even though they all read Koine Greek, Romans conducted their law in Latin. And in Latin, polites was rendered as this word, uh, kiwis. Kiwis. That's your next fancy word for the day. You get to say kiwis on the count of three. One, two, three. Kiwis. Very good. Kiwis is is the is the idea of the of the citizen of the state, which was called the Kiwites, and that spreads civilization. Civilization, right? These, these terms, they're ingrained in the thinking of the world. They have become so important, they have spread all throughout the world. Nearly every single language in the world has some form of the word civics, politics, citizen, civilization. So, so here's the summary of the thought. This is what we need to know behind Romans 13. Civilization always involves state efforts to become self-fulfilling. That is, the state takes a vested interest in training citizens, polites, kiwis, So that the state, the polis, the kiwitas, continues under proper authority. And Christians are called to submit to that authority. But that is only one of the Christians' passports. In Romans 13, Paul also establishes his argument on the basis of our heavenly citizenship. Read read verse 1 again. Let everyone submit to the governing authorities. Since there is no authority except from whom, everybody? Yeah, God. And the authorities that exist are instituted by God. Isn't it interesting to note what Paul sees as the basis of human authority? Is government authority based on the fact that they have all the power? Do do we obey the state because they have guns, laws, uh, police? No. No, we obey because they are under the higher power of God. The real king is God. He is the hidden power behind the throne. He is the one ruling from the undiscovered country of heaven. This holds massive implications for our lives. Look, look at how uh, Philippians chapter 3, again, Paul is, is very, very wise on this subject. He summarizes this way, Philippians 3 verse 20. In fact, why don't you just read it with me? We'll read it together line by line. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's great insight to this verse in our notes. Look at the note from John Whitmer's uh, wonderful article, The Man with Two Countries. He says this, The use of these words in Paul's correspondence to the Philippians is significant and appropriate. Since the city prided itself on being a Roman colony. But our citizenship is in heaven. As grand as it was that Philippi had gained Roman citizenship, the fact remained that their divine citizenship in heaven, that was foremost. That's why Romans 13 goes out of its way to make it clear that God is the real king. He establishes thrones and authorities. Even as we submit to our earthly authorities, it's important for us to remember our passport to heaven. Our earthly citizenship now is the the main point of this passage in Romans 13 but we mustn't miss the underlying importance of the divine citizenship and that brings me to a serious problem. I am concerned about us because we don't think in terms of our eternal citizenship. At least it's usually just an afterthought. For example, I recently got got to intervene with two wonderful Christians who serve on the same legislative body. These two people are friends of mine. They are brethren in Christ. They strongly disagreed on an earthly political issue. It was like a cat fight. I mean, fur and slander were flying, and I got to be the spray bottle that God used to stop the bickering. Actually, I was more like a water hose. My role was unenviable, but it was very simple. I just hosed each person down with Philippians 3.20. To their credit... They stopped snarling at each other on social media. They recognized that earthly governing disagreements never trump our united heavenly citizenship. All God's people said, amen. Now, that's not to say they won't disagree anymore. They almost surely will. Because the tension between these two passports, it always brings up certain problems. But hopefully, my friends will remember the soaking they received from God's Word, and they will live according to the general rule. The general rule is that the divine citizenship takes precedence. Look look, look here. The apostles' reaction in Acts chapter 5. Acts 5, the apostles are hauled in and told, you cannot talk about Jesus. Not allowed. We've made a new rule. You're not allowed to do that. Look at their response, verse 29, Acts chapter 5. Uh, why don't you read this with me as well, okay? We'll just take it line by line. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. The government said, Deny Jesus. And the apostles said, No way, Jose. The eternal divine country has precedence. You see the priority. Now, I know you are, you are likely saying in your, um, your Severus Snape voice that I was asked to do, not so fast, Mr. Pastor. The lines are often more blurred, and it's hard to know exactly how God would have me handle my dual citizenship. Yes, Severus, you are correct. To understand how to handle the more blurry times, let's look at how Paul handled it. Paul, proud of each of his passports, gives us a brilliant example, and he calls us to imitate him. So, look to the right side of our notes where Paul dives into the specifics that are inherent, the prices that we have to pay for each of our passports. First, in no uncertain terms, Paul says, be subject. That's the message of Romans 13, verses 1 through 5. Now, the, the first thought here is what we've already mentioned. The divine authority establishes earthly authority. Look, look at verse 2, the first part. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command. There is no one in charge whom God did not put there. Now, the reason for their elevation may not be evident to us. They may even be evil, but God has established all authority. Think about the world in which Paul wrote this. Paul Paul worked under the reign of Claudius, this very, very difficult person who expelled all non-slave Jews from Rome, including those who were Christians, because of fights over Crestus, he said. Nero was the guy on the throne as he wrote this physically. And this is the guy who who killed Christians, blaming tragedy on them. But God says to be in submission to these authorities. Now, interestingly, listen very carefully. Notice that he doesn't say obey. There may be times where obedience is impossible given the priority of the divine citizenship. But even then, we can be submissive in our choice to obey God Instead of men, this is the command of God. Do you see that phrase? God has instituted, He has ordained these, these leaders. So, with that in mind, kids, how does God feel about children disobeying parents? hmm. How about anti boss gossip? How does God view rebellious teenagers? What does God think about husbands and wives who badmouth each other when when they are commanded to be in submission to one another? Ooh, ooh, what about rebellion in in a church? Every church I've ever known has on occasion rebelled against some leader authority. I have done it, I'm sad to say. What does God say about that? Well, Well, God says this, dissidents will be judged. Look. The one who resists authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. When you are good and submissive, Paul says the government is your servant leader. When you are rebellious against the government, it is bound to punish you. Now, does that mean that rebellion against a wicked government is always wrong? For centuries, that has been the subject of much debate. There are two ways that that this is fleshed out. In societies influenced by the Bible, there are two answers. Each has merit. I'm going to try to be fair to each. One view sees that even an oppressive government is something to just be endured, never rebelled against. Uh, God will sovereignly recompense in his time. This is not our ultimate home anyway. By the way, this attitude can and has in history led to very powerful witness for Christ. See, many people come to Christ in those situations. The other big idea is that all unholy governance, all the Nero's of the world, those are illegitimate rulers. Verses 3 and 4 are describing a normal government and an evil one must be overthrown and a Romans 13 compliant one installed instead. This, by the way, has been done rarely in history, but when it has been, it has led to and probably still can lead to a, a large increase in individual and corporate freedom. Okay. There is a third rail to all this. It's not actually an application of this text, but during the 20th century, this was the most popular. The third idea sees government as just a human choice. There is no divine overlord. There's no God. So humans can erect any government they want so long as at least that government gives lip service at least to the idea of the power of the people. This third way always leads to oppression. Always. Remember, the first response can can lead to a very powerful witness. The, The second can bring an increase in freedom. The third option always and only leads to oppression. Every single time it's been tried in history, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, the Cuban Revolution, and on and on and on and on. Now, I am sure that I'm going to get mail asking which of these options I think best fits Romans 13. I'm not going to tell you. You'll have to decide for yourself. You need to work this through on your own. As you do so, don't miss verse 5. Verse 5 applies in either case. Uh, read, read verse 5 again. <clears throat> Therefore, you must submit, not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. Uh, this is Paul's summary here of this section. There are dual reasons for dual citizens. There are dual reasons for dual citizens to submit to earthly authorities. The state bears the sword. It will exercise wrath to protect itself. That is a truism of politics in all times and all places. It, it, By the way, this really is not talking about individual sin and capital punishment. That's why the text, did you notice in verse 2, some of you probably did, the text shifted uh, to plural pronouns in verse 2 from singular pronouns. This is describing the fact that governments will quell non-peaceful rebellion with violence. As Jesus said to one of his followers, he who lives by the sword will die by it. Therefore, we submit for wrath's sake. But we also submit for conscience sake. All this is from God. He is the ultimate Lord. We need to have a good conscience to make sure we are not throwing away the ordinance of God. Christians are dual citizens. And verse 5 gives us dual reasons to be subject to authority. Paul opens our blind eyes to our earthly responsibilities. First thing he says is be subject. Now, he gets more specific and he says pay. Pay. Uh, Taxes, he says. First look at verse 6. And for this reason, you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's servants continually attending to these tasks. Paul here is building, a lot of you know this, he's building on Jesus' teaching in Matthew 22. Really, really cool story. Look here, Matthew 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to trap him, Jesus, by what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, which is kind of a weird mix, because the uh, uh, the disciples of the, the Pharisees and the Herodians were kind of different. Uh, the Herodians were really into human government, followers of Herod. Anyway, teacher, they said. I don't know if you know, that's how they spoke. Uh, Teacher, they said, we know that you're truthful, (laughs) and you teach truthfully the way of God. (laughs) You don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? (laughs) Perceiving their malicious intent, Jesus said, why are you testing me, hypocrites? Oh, my God, just stop there. Isn't that... Verse 18 is one of the greatest verses in the Bible. I love this. Perceiving their malicious intent, Jesus said, get out of the road, little puppy, and let the big dogs play. I mean, that is just awesome. He said, why are you testing me, hypocrites? Show me the coin you used for the tax. They brought him a denarius. That's the, the main coin in Roman uh, coinage. Whose image and description is this? He asked them. Caesar's they said to him. Then he said, Give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. The Pharisees and the political allies of Herod try to catch Jesus in a trap. They recognized there's a dual citizenship here, so they try to set a trap. Jesus doesn't bite. He says, in essence, this is earth. You must be under the authority God has established on earth. But... Oh, my goodness, this is so cool. Look, look, look. Jesus also subtly, this is so brilliant, he showed the limits of that earthly authority. The coin he was handed had Tiberius' Caesar's image on the front of it. But on the backside, it had this image of Livia, and it says, Pontifex Maximus. That means that Tiberius was claiming to be the head of each kingdom. He was claiming to be the head of all religion, the Pontifex Maximus. Jesus said, look at his image. Give him the money. But he pointedly ignored the backside of the coin. He didn't say to give anything else. Therefore, you never worship anything on earth. Not even a state that claims power over religion. But you do pay your taxes in full. Did Jesus say to pay only the taxes with which you agree? Did he say... Only pay your taxes when you like the person who's president. Did he say to cheat just a little so that you can stick it to the IRS, man? No. He said unequivocally, pay your taxes to the state, but not your worship. In fact, we pay what is owed everyone. Look at verse 7 again. Pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes to those you owe taxes. Tolls to those you owe tolls. Respect to those you owe respect. And honor to those you owe honor. The basic idea here is the government serves by exercising regulatory authority. That's what they do. Therefore, it is only fair that they get paid. Remember, God said this at a time. When tax collectors under the old Roman system, tax collectors were horribly unfair and corrupt. Their profit was based on how much they could squeeze out of citizens in any province with no cap, no cap enforced by the government. By the time, by the time this was written, publicanus, or, or tax collector, had come to be used as an exact synonym for the word sinner. All right? You pay even an evil government because even it serves you. In the late 13th century... This guy, Pope Boniface XIII, uh, Sir, Sir Pope Boniface VIII, he ordered the English priests, get this, he wrote to the priests in England, and he said, you are not to pay taxes to the government of England because your citizenship is only in heaven. You're not citizens of the earth. In fact, he made the paying of, of taxes, earthly taxes, a crime in the church that, uh, that would be punished by excommunication. I don't have time to explain that. Your parents can explain to you what an unbiblical and really, really difficult thing that was at that time. Okay, so he said, you don't pay taxes. You're only a citizen of heaven. King Edward I of England, really a, a, a brilliant guy, and I apologize to my friends in Scotland. I didn't say he was nice. I just said he was brilliant. He, um, he responded by saying, all right, if you're not going to pay taxes to support the government, you don't get any benefits of the government. You know what happened? Priests began to be openly robbed. And no one did anything. Churches and monasteries were plundered. The what we get sheriffs from, the courts gave no assistance. So the priests finally decided they needed that earthly government after all. And so they decided they wanted to pay taxes. Here's how they got around it. They got around the excommunication ban. by, by They would go and they would just deposit their money in an empty church, where the shirees just happened to be coming by and they would pick up the money and take it, and then all the king's officers again protected them. Christians and churches pay taxes. Next, we pay tolls. Uh, This is a Greek word for indirect taxes, like like sales tax, um, excise, custom duties. Uh, We're also instructed to render respect. This is cool. It's entirely possible that this is a reminder of God's omnipotence, actually, You see, respect is used in this way. Elsewhere in the Bible, this word used for respect, it's only used to discuss the fact that we only fear God. God is sovereign. We fear only Him. And with the reminder to fear no one but God, we're finally told to pay honor. That means we honor people who hold public office. I don't know about you, I have not liked some of the people who have held political power over me. Some, in fact, I loathed. And yet, I chose to honor them because of their office. Are you rendering to each office the honor that is due it, even during an election year? Pay the only true debt of love. Listen again. Beautiful prose of verses 8 through 10. Just just let this wash over you. This is so beautifully written. Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. This little island is uh, Amorgas. It's in the eastern Mediterranean. 2,300 years ago, pirates uh, attacked this little town uh, right here. They attacked by night. They rounded up uh, 30 prisoners. They were mostly women and children. um, And they were going to leave the next day with their captives. By the way, that 30 people. That was a substantial portion of the island's entire population. Two young men. We don't know what they looked like. But their names were Igisipos and Antipapos. They convinced the raiders to take them only and take them and let the women and children go free. It was a heroic act, a heroic act of love, and they gained freedom for all their people. By the way, the the state of Amorgos erected a sign, a memorial to them. Uh, You can't get to it now, but it's inside this later built uh, monastery up on a cliff. They wanted them to be honored forever love is a continuous unpaid debt and Igisipos and Antipapos show us how to live that it's like Jesus said he said greater love has no one than this then he laid down his life for his friends owe nothing to anyone except to love one another I will always have this continuous unpaid debt that I'm supposed to love my neighbor Look, look at the context pay everyone what is their due you should eliminate all other debts but this one goes on We are to continually pay toward the debt of love. In a few days, Jana and I will celebrate our anniversary. All right, tell me um, what items should be checked off for me to show my sweetheart that I love her, right? Flowers, check. Card, check. Meal out, expensive, check. Okay, that's pretty much it, right? I mean, I'm done for the year, I mean, at least until the next Valentine's Day, right? No. Oh, heavens, no. No. I have a debt to pay that precious woman who shares my name, and I need to make payments on it every single day. Is that how we are loving our spouses? Stop. Stop thinking about them and how they're loving you. I'm asking about you and how you are loving them. You, do you look at your love as something to be just checked off or something to act on every single day in imitation of Jesus? Greater love has no one than to lay down his life. Love is a continuous unpaid debt. Now, as you look at how the indwelling spirit guided Paul, notice the flow of verses 8 to 9 to 10. Did he limit the field to just spouses? How how about about only, only to our families? Did he say we owe a debt of love only to our brethren in Christ? No, no, no. He quoted Jesus and reminded us that this applies to every neighbor, even those whom we can't stand Verse 9, the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet any other commandment are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love is other-centered. That doesn't mean it's other-controlled. That's a a lie of our present time, but it is other-centered. I'm sure this sounds very strange, by the way, in our selfish, consumer-driven culture. Online, I recently flipped through a, a few books on leadership. I was looking for something, and, and I got fascinated. did a little side study. You ever have that happen? You're looking for one thing, and you get lost and start looking at something else. And I began to notice these books, these leadership books I was reading, nearly every one of them, even the ones that were written by Christians, proclaimed that leadership is all about achievement and promotion. One of the phrases I ran into a lot was this phrase, you do you. Baloney! Jesus is the leader. His way is to love. You do others. That means we lead in our homes and our businesses and our church and our sports. Oh, don't you miss sports? And our shopping malls and our lake parties and our interminable online meetings. We lead by looking out for others before ourselves. Here, read with me. Uh, you take the underlined portions of Philippians chapter 2, uh, verse 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Love is the fulfillment of God's moral law. That's obviously the main idea in Romans 13. It appears in verse 8 and verse 9 and verse 10. We looked earlier at Matthew 22. A little bit later in that chapter, Jesus was asked how to fulfill God's law. He replied with what we call the great commandments. According to the Old Testament, Jesus summarized the way to fulfill God's law. Listen to what he says, Matthew 22. He said to him, the one who had asked him, how do I fulfill God's law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is the reference for that. This is the greatest and most important command. And then the other one you've read in Romans. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, from Leviticus 19. All the law and the prophets depend on these Two commands. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. On these hang the law and the prophets. In other words, this is how one pleases God. Is that how you and I live? Even with people who see important political issues differently than we do? Well, if that's not how we live, we're blowing it. Because love is the final key to living effectively with two passports. Through Paul. God shows us how to live effectively with two passports. He gets very specific about this in in a letter to Timothy. I'd like you to flip over to 1 Timothy. It's just to the right, a few pages in your Bible. Just go to the east to 1 Timothy. You'll find it, astonishingly, just before 2 Timothy and uh, right after 2 Thessalonians. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and let's read the last part we'll read today, verses 1 through 4. First of all, then. I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Friends, prayer for earthly leaders. Here's, here it is. Here's the perfect combination of our two passports pray for earthly leaders. It is the best application of Romans 13. But again, we have a problem. Every survey I have seen indicates that fewer than 8, you ready for this? Fewer than 8% of Christians play, pray regularly for people in authority. Can you believe that? A direct command from God? And fewer than 8% of people who believe in God, who trust Him, obey. Look, I'm, I'm going to show you the numbers from a, uh, the most recent Barna report. I doubt you can read these, but that's okay. I'll read them to you. Um what does the content of your prayers? Mo- oh, this is such a horribly written sentence. To what does the content of your prayers most often pertain? There we go. Uh, so what are you praying about? Gratitude and thanksgiving, 62%. 61% of the Christians said my prayers had to deal with the needs of my family and community. That's totally valid. Personal guidance in crises, very wise. My health and wellness, confession and forgiveness, 43%. Things I suddenly feel uh, compelled to pray about, uh, 43% pray about that. Safety in my daily tasks or travel, 41%. A sense of peace, I pray for a sense of peace, 37% said that. Uh, This one surprised me, I thought it would be a little higher. Uh, Blessings for meals, 37%. Specific requests from others, 34% of Christians pray about that. 24%. Pray for concerns they have about the nation or the government, and twenty percent pray about global problems and injustices. Twelve percent pray about my sleep. Eight percent of, of say my prayers are mainly about reciting scripture passages. Uh, what an old professor of mine called praying God's words back to Him, uh, meditations, liturgies. Eight percent other. That eight percent other includes prayer for leaders. It was less than eight percent of the total. Forty-four. Now look, put these two together. 44% of people prayed about human leaders, and and that's that's great. But praying about someone is not the same as praying for them. Aren't you glad that we're not like those people? (laughs) We always pray just as God commanded. First of all, for those who are leaders, those who are in authority. What's that? Oh, Oh, we don't, do we? All right, just to illustrate how poorly we obey. Stand up, everyone, if you're able, if you, if you can. Stand up right now, everyone, including you. Stand up, it's time for your favorite game. Let's see how well you obey. The name of the game, boys and girls, is Simon Says. I am Simon. You must do what Simon says. You must do what Simon says. Not necessarily what he does, what he says. And you must look at Simon at all times. Right, camera Abby? Okay, look at Simon at all times, all right? Simon Says, don't touch your face disobedient people don't touch your face all right very good here I'll move me right here okay Simon says Simon says touch your shoulders. Simon says touch your elbows Simon says touch your shoulders touch your elbows good Simon says touch your knees touch your elbows very good Simon says touch your elbows Simon says touch your knees Simon says touch your shoulders Simon says touch your knees take a seat. Simon says hands on your hips Simon says touch your knees Simon says touch your hips now put your hands on your shoulders Ha- <laughs> okay hands on your shoulders uh, that's sad I- <laughs> Simon says hands on your shoulders Simon says touch the top of your head only the top of your head Simon says touch your ears Simon says touch your shoulders touch your elbows very good how many of you're still in you saying it on the chat all right very good all right Simon says take a seat very good we struggle to obey don't we you know what's really sad about this—that less, less than 44% pray about leaders, but less than 8% pray for them. What's most sad for, for Americans is that our current U.S. president even specifically requested—he specifically asked that Christians pray for him—and and yet the the number doesn't appear to have changed at all. Are you convicted yet? Yeah, me too. Once you to look one last time at the Timothy text. God uses four words, four words to describe how important this is to us as dual citizens. Four words. Petitions is the first one. That has to do with specific needs that are, that are related to the government for which you're requesting divine help. So, so what are the specific needs of your governments? Um, does your local government need employees? Uh, d- does your national government need money? Hint, yes. Um, does, does your county health official need some rest? Okay, well, petition the one and only true sovereign for those things. Now, prayers is the Greek word prosuchia. Prosuchia. It's a Prosuche is a general word. Uh, it's, used, it's used in lots of ways. But when it's used like this, in this kind of construction, it, it only means discussing things with God. Now, that's humbling. You, you ever think about how much time we spend talking to other people about politics and how little time we spend talking about it with God? Here's a challenge. Here's a challenge for you. This is your mission should you choose to accept it. For every minute between now and the November election, for every minute you spend talking, posting, answering, or grinding your teeth about politics, spend at least one minute talking it all over with God. I think that will be a start on praying first of all. Intercession is a Greek term for standing in the gap. Uh, the, the, it carries the idea of warfare. There's a breach in the wall, and you stand in and you protect the, the city. In prayer, we, we stand in the gap for human leaders. We ask God's blessings on them, even when we think they're wrong. Remember, when, when God had Paul command, intercession, standing in the gap, be made for all in authority. The ultimate temporal ruler on this earth was a remarkably horrible man named Nero Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus. We call him... Nero, but you have to say it with a sneer. Uh, okay, kids, try it like this, Nero, Nero. <laughs> Very good. Uh, you, can, you can look up how horrible he was. And that was the ruler when Paul said to intercede, to stand in the gap for authority. The fourth word, thanksgivings, conveys the necessity for thanks and, and praise to God. And by the way, here, American Christians, you're doing much better. Giving thanks is actually the top of our, uh, of our activities in prayer, and that's good. Now, notice the Timothy passage enumerates two reasons after the four commands. You've got four commands, and there's two reasons given for standing in the gap in prayer. Number one, we stand in the gap and pray for authorities so we can get peace and quiet. We want government to leave us alone to do God's work living as his followers. By the way, those English priests under Edward I, they learned the hard way how important this is. Reason number two, our prayers can be used. God uses them to lead to the salvation of leaders and of entire peoples. Why why else would God attach to this passage, verse 4, his desire for all to come to salvation? It's because your prayers matter. God can use them to give us peace from persecution. God uses them to bring people to the most important citizenship, a passport to heaven through faith in Jesus. All God's people said? Amen. Okay. So stand up with me, please. Seriously, stand if, if you wish. Physically stand. And let's, let's stand physically and stand spiritually. Let's stand in the gap. Okay, let's pray right now. Father, we stand together as your church and we pray for authorities, for all of the people who have authority in our lives. Some are wrong. Some, many, thank you, are right we pray for them all we ask you that you will give us peace we know we have peace that passes understanding and lasts forever in our citizenship as heavenly citizens thank you thank you thank you but we pray for peace on earth and we pray for authorities who let us and help us live in peace and we pray for salvation lord We pray for all of the different layers of people who have authority in our lives. So many of them do not know Jesus as Savior. Please bring them to you. I pray that they and many, many others will receive salvation by believing on Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.